0: I thank you Matt and the team again. Our reading this morning is actually found in Joshua chapter 9 but I'm going to start with uh, Romans chapter 12 verses 1 to 2 where Paul said these words and we'll throw these up on the screen here so that you can follow. Therefore, Paul said, I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God this is your true and proper worship do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is his good pleasing and perfect will that's a very strategic verse in Romans and those last few words have been sitting on my mind for the last few weeks about a fortnight or so ago, I preached at the evening service and spoke about discerning the will of God. One of the perennial questions that we have, how do we know God's will? And so I thought this morning I'd start by sharing how over this past couple of weeks I've been putting this into practice with some really practical kind of examples to help you understand as we come to Joshua 9. So for example, last night, uh, I came to a Saturday night, which is my weekly shower night. <laughs> you should be thankful that I do it on Saturday night <laughs> and not Sunday night. And I said to the Lord, Lord, if you, uh, if you want me to stay in the shower for 40 minutes, which I know environmentally is not that uh, sensible, but if you want me to stay in the shower for 40 minutes or so, could you arrange it so that the hot water doesn't run out? <laughs> and so I hopped into the shower and away I went, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, it just kept on going. So it must have been the Lord's will for me to stay in the shower for 40 minutes. That and the fact that we've also got a gas-boosted hot water system. <laughs> so it worked pretty well. And through the course of this past week, as, uh, as I've been having breakfast... Uh, normally over uh, over many years I've eaten Wheat Bix for breakfast Uh, I'm not so much just recently because after 35 years of eating Wheat Bix I reckon by my calculations I've eaten about 4.8 kilometers in a line of Wheat Bix so I've changed over to Wheaties for the time being and I've said to the Lord Lord if you want me to eat these Wheaties this morning please don't let them go soggy otherwise I'll have to have bacon and eggs. And would you believe it, the Wheaties went soggy. And so I had bacon and eggs again. Must have been the Lord's will. And then I thought, this is going so swimmingly well, you know what, what I'd really like is another new bike. <laughs> now I have to put, I put it out there that as it stands right now today, I've got four bikes, that's, um, that's probably, there's a formula for how many bikes a bloke is allowed to have. Rob, you'll understand this. The formula looks like this, n minus one. And the value of n is the moment when your wife goes, you've got too many bikes, either one of them go or I go. And so the idea is that you have just enough but not too many. n minus one. I reckon I might be running at about n plus one today. (laughs) But because the whole idea of discerning God's will has been working so well for me this week, I thought, you know what, Lord, I'll ask you this question. If today, as I'm riding to church on my old hybrid bike, the brakes squeal as I come down to Lorikeet Street, as I come around the corner there, I know it's your will for me to get a new bike, right? And guess what? The brakes squeal, just like they have every other time. And so tomorrow morning, I'll be over at Aubrey at the bike shop looking at which one. Uh, and, and Diana said to me the other day, oh, I'm allowed to have another one. How about that? Isn't she a wonderful woman to be married to? <laughs> we'll be up to N plus two by the middle of this week. Now we laugh because you can see the fallacy uh, associated with the strategy that I'm using uh, in terms of discerning God's will And uh, uh, there is some fallacy in that. Uh, Allowing my circumstances actually to determine uh, what God's will might be when in fact some of those things will happen naturally or allowing my emotional desires to get in the way of what God might truly want and cloaking them in this guise of spirituality which we sometimes do. Well, over the past few weeks... Those of you who've been here with us in the morning will know we've been working our way through the book of Joshua and this morning we come to Joshua chapter 9 where the Israelites allowed their observation of circumstances determine their decision rather than asking what is God's will rather than going to the Lord and seeking the Lord's face. They allowed the environment that they were in to make the decision for them as we see as we go through this um, passage and I want to speak about three things this morning one is uh, this one that knowledge doesn't always give birth to right actions So I'll talk a little bit about what that means in a few moments uh, the second one which we've alluded to that discernment of God's will must take account of more than just the circumstances that we are part of and uh, the third one uh, that God's intention for marriage really is that it's for life now you might be wondering what on earth does this passage have to do with marriage Keep wondering because uh, we'll get there as we consult the passage before us. And let's read through uh, from Joshua chapter 9, verse 1, which starts the story off. Now, when all of the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, that is, of course, the things that have happened prior to this passage, the kings in the hill country, the western foothills, and along the entire coast of the Mediterranean Sea as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, they came together to wage war against Joshua and Israel. Now this passage uh, introduction tells us something really interesting about what was happening because all of the people in these verses, in fact let's have a look at a little map just to get a bit of orientation here. The people that we're talking about are the ones kind of over in this Uh, western part there, the plain down towards the plains where the Philistines lived, they'd heard about what had happened at Ai. And of course, what had happened at Ai, if you're familiar with this story, is that as the Israelites went up against Ai, they said, look, it's only a small city, lightly defended, let's just take a small force up. The small force went up and the small force was defeated. And so Israel said, whoops, to go up with a bigger force I'm summarizing the story of course Uh, so they went up with a bigger force and the bigger force had the victory and so the people in these other cities looked at what had happened and said okay let's use some logic here Israel's defeated when they went with a small force they were defeated by a bigger force therefore if we want to defeat Israel what are we going to need a bigger force again and so they came together in this uh, consolidation or an alliance that had been created and and it encompassed quite a significant area quite a large area of people who got together and said that uh, they would make war against Israel except for one group and that of course is the Gibeonites the inhabitants of the city of Gibeon who were ethnically Hivites the city of Gibeon, if you have a look at the map there, is actually not too far away from where the Israelites were. It's a city that was around about eight kilometres from Jerusalem. You could walk to uh, Gibeon from Jerusalem, although it wasn't Jerusalem in those days, of course, in you know, a good couple of hours, if that. And in terms of where the Israelites were down there towards uh, Gilgal, around that Jericho area, not that far away probably less than 30 to 40 kilometers as the crow flies and so there's a pretty good chance that the Gibeonites knew what had happened at Ai they'd heard stories perhaps they'd seen the results of what had taken place there and the city of Gibeon was unique in so much as the manner in which Gibeon was ruled was quite different to many of the other cities. See, it was quite common in these days for a city to be ruled by a king. Now, a city might only have consisted of three or four hundred inhabitants, but they would have had a king, and the king's rule was generally absolute, but not so in Gibeon. Gibeon was a unique city in that it was ruled by a council of elders, which made it perhaps... Uh, more considerate in terms of uh, thinking about going to war you see a king a king can act impetuously a king can kind of act in his own volition if you like but a council of elders brings a little bit more wisdom to the table doesn't it and so if you marry the proximity of Gibeon with the manner in which they were ruled it's not actually a surprise that they said wait a second we're not sure about this let's try another strategy and if you want to think just as we take a deviation for 3 seconds this idea of being ruled by a council of elders kinds of makes sense doesn't it it's something that we apply in the church and it's something that we find rooted in the scriptures for example in proverbs chapter 11 verse 14 we read for lack of guidance a nation falls but many advisers make victory sure one of the proverbs of solomon there explaining the wisdom that there is in hearing other voices some translations simply say there is safety in many counselors there's much wisdom to be found in hearing other opinions before making a decision and that's true i think when it comes to discerning god's will isn't it if you've ever been in a place where you've had to make a tricky decision a life-changing decision there's wisdom in going and asking people who you know are anointed by god's spirit who are in touch with god who are wise in the things of God and saying, what are your thoughts? What is your feedback? What are, you, uh, what are your reflections? And maybe at a purely secular level, this worked for the citizens of Gibeon. And so, as we read in the Scriptures, they resorted to a ruse, a ruse for those of you who are following the sermon notes as a kind of a, a trick or a, a scheme, if you like remembering of course that they lived no more than 40 kilometers from where the Israelites camped and so we pick up the story in verse 4 they went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended they put worn patched sandals on their feet and they wore old clothes all the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy then they went to Joshua in camp at Gilgal and said to him and the Israelites, we have come from a distant country, make a treaty with us. Now that's a really interesting statement because the city of Gibeon, if you you back up to uh, the map that we were looking at a moment ago, is firmly in the area of Canaan and God had said uh, to uh, Joshua and the Israelites, that I will establish your borders from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea and from the desert to the Euphrates. I will give into your hands the people who live in the land and you will drive them out before you. Do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. Do not let them live in your land or they will cause you to sin against me because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. That comes from Exodus chapter 23 31 to 33 so God had actually said anyone who lives in that area of Canaan you are to drive them out you're to wipe them out but interestingly God also said and you'll find this in Deuteronomy chapter 20 if you come to the boundaries and you come up against some people uh, make a treaty with them if they're prepared to serve you otherwise push them out so there was this kind of two-stage plan if you like inside the area no quarters to be given Outside the area, you can negotiate with them if they're prepared to serve you and, and, uh, and not be a problem. And so, I wonder whether the Gibeonites knew this. And the reason I wonder this is because, as uh, Darren shared with us last week in chapter... Uh, 8 the end of chapter 8 the covenant was renewed up there on Mount Ebal and uh, the people gathered and the law was read out the whole of the law was read out these statements were found in the law these statements about wiping out the nations about making treaties with nations outside the boundaries I wonder whether there were some Gibeonite spies it's pure speculation of course but I wonder whether there was news that got back to the city of Gibeon said you know what if we pretend to come from outside, we might just be able to get away with this because we know that anyone who's on the inside's in trouble and we are on the inside. So let's pretend that we come from the outside. And maybe we'll be able to make a treaty with the Israelites. Maybe we will be able to offer to make ourselves slaves. And that's really curious because that's exactly what was in the word. That's exactly what was in the law that had been read out to Israel that's exactly what God said should happen I wonder whether these Gibeonites knew that and so took what you might call preemptive action knowing that uh, if they pulled this ruse off they might be able to survive better to serve than die of course hence their action and that brings to uh, to us an interesting point of application to reflect on for although the Gibeonites had accurate knowledge of what God had said they didn't apply their knowledge with right actions and it's true isn't it to say that right knowledge doesn't always give birth to right actions these Gibeonites knew what God had said but they acted in a deceptive way what might have happened if like Rahab they had gone to Joshua and said hey you know what we recognize that the God that you worship is the one true God we want to bow before him in confession and know that he is a forgiving God as Rahab essentially had done what might have changed in that sense right knowledge would have given birth to right action and the outcome may have been totally different on this occasion uh, they they uh, applied right knowledge in an inappropriate way and we see the same kind of thing at work through the scriptures if you jump into a passage like 1 corinthians chapter 8 there in the new testament paul took some some issue with uh, with christians in corinth who in newfound freedom in this new knowledge that they had that christ had set them free from the uh, the pagan world around about them were doing things uh, that they'd never done before and one of the big issues in corinth of course was meat that had been offered to idols If you went to any butcher in Corinth, and there would have been dozens of them and bought meat, it was inevitably meat that had been offered to idols. Oh my goodness, what are we going to do with that? Well, the Christians, some of them at least, realized it doesn't matter because idols are nothing they're just kind of false gods, you know, they've got no power over us. And so they were celebrating this and eating this food and and Paul has a real beef with them, no, he had a real goat or a real sheep (laughs) with them over this. He said, you guys, you've got right knowledge but you're not applying it with love because there are some amongst you who are struggling with this concept. There are some in the Christian community who haven't actually connected this freedom in their conscience yet. And so your right knowledge, he says you're right, you know, idols are nothing. They're not going to harm you. God's more powerful than anything. But you're not applying your knowledge with wisdom and love. And there's an important message for us, I think. Because we can have right knowledge and not apply it with wisdom and love. We might have right knowledge about the whole of the Bible. I have told a story occasionally of a fellow, I won't use his name, video's a problem sometimes... Uh, he's a guy who came to church for a number of years and he he just knew everything in the Bible. Trouble is, he didn't know Jesus. That was a major disconnection. Uh, His knowledge didn't give birth to wisdom and love. It was knowledge that was used to kind of punch people almost metaphorically with... uh, Right knowledge doesn't always give birth to right actions. And there's a challenge there for us, I think, uh, to be aware of that too be self-aware too to exercise humility to think about what it means uh, to sacrifice ourselves for the sake of others all sorts of things that come out of this i remember sitting again in another context in a small group of men with another pastor who was in charge and one of the guys in the group was had been married a couple of times and was about to get married for a third time and uh, the pastor friend of mine was expressing some real concerns about the manner in which he was approaching his third marriage because he was coming to his third marriage with all of this knowledge from the first two you see I've been married twice before so it's easy you know I've got this under control I'm going to just do this easy kind of stuff and right knowledge doesn't always give birth to right actions he went into that third marriage and I know now looking back at it some years later that it went as badly as the first two Knowledge that's not exercised with, as I say, self-awareness and humility and self-sacrifice uh, doesn't necessarily build up. It can tear down. It can be used as a weapon. Uh, we might have the right knowledge about uh, a particular doctrine or aspect of Christian theology, but if it's not measured against the broader uh, revelation of God it can easily be used to abuse or bring about a wrong emphasis that doesn't necessarily grow the body. Accurate knowledge, as I say, doesn't necessarily give birth to proper actions. But knowledge exercised in the context of wisdom and love, well, that's another thing altogether. Let's move on in the story, though, and see uh, how it unfolds. Verse 7, the Israelites said to the Hivites, but perhaps you live near us so how could we make a treaty with you? Remember, they've come pretending to live far away. We are your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, who are you and where do you come from? And they answered, your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt All that he did to the two kings of the Amorites, east of the Jordan, Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. Now, before we read on, can you tell me two important cities they failed to mention? Jericho and Ai. Because the logical question that Joshua would have asked if they'd said, we saw what happened in Jericho and Ai, was, how do you know about those ones? Because they're really close by, aren't they? But they're sneaky, these uh, these Gibeonites. They've just kind of ignored Jericho and Ai. We heard about those ones way, way over there because we're from a far and distant country, remember? Not these ones close by. And our elders and all those living in our country said to us, take provisions for your journey, go and meet them and say to them, we are your servants, make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you, but see how dry and mouldy it is. And these wineskins that were filled were new, but see how cracked they are. And our clothes and sandals are worn out by the very long journey. The Israelites sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them and let them live and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. Now, of course, verse 14 is the controlling statement in that passage. Those of us reading with the benefit of the broader context know that things are not going to end well because of that statement but did not inquire of the Lord And there were actually mechanisms available to Israel to do that. It was not hard for Joshua to do that. They had a priestly function in the nation operating even then that could have done that. But it highlights for us one of the points that I made earlier and that is this, there is grave danger in allowing our circumstances be the sole determinant in knowing God's will you see when we're asking the question what is God's will for my life one of the things that God uses and uses frequently and uses to his glory is our circumstances I've said to people many times as we've talked about this you know God leads us with open doors and with closed doors our circumstances the context that we are in are, are one of the ways that God does lead us Joshua and his men looked at the evidence They checked out everything presented to them by the Gibeonites and on the face of it, it looked legitimate. It was ticking all of the boxes. They had the the loaded donkeys, for those of you who are doing the worksheet, just take notice of that. They had worn out sacks, they must have gone out behind their houses and found some old ones. Cracked wineskins, stuff they didn't really use particularly anymore, patched sandals, old clothes, moldy bread, everything pointed to the veracity of their story. But here's the problem, Israel failed to inquire of the Lord and uh, there is a really strong application that we might make from this when it comes to making decisions, when it comes to making decisions about life or work or relationships, whatever it might be, taking into consideration the circumstances, that's important. But I'll say this, no proposed course of conduct no matter what it might be, can ever be allowed to appear to be so obvious that it absolves us from the important duty of seeking direction from the Lord. That's a really important statement because sometimes we just seem to think every box is being ticked, all the ducks are lining up, the stars are aligning, everything seems to be right. Should I inquire of the Lord? Well, I don't need to worry about it because everything looks right. And here's the warning from this passage. Don't ignore this important imperative. The important duty of seeking direction from the Lord personally. Now, thinking about how we might um, put some flesh on this and, uh, and just to really frighten you, if you like, uh, let's think about Christmas. It's not that far away. Let's think about the Magi, the wise men who came from the east. There's a, there's a great sermon in these guys. Typically we think of them as three. Well, who, the Bible doesn't tell us there were three. There was probably a whole caravan. But let's not get bound up in those details. Let's think about one important detail in relation to what we're talking about here this morning. These geezers came from down Iraq way somewhere. That's where they were from, down in Persia they knew something was going on in history how do they know that probably because they had access to some of the same material that daniel has there you know the prophetic words from daniel uh, talking about the coming of the messiah the months all this stuff and they'd put two and two and seven and 28 and 37 by four and all those numbers and stuff together and they knew something was happening something significant was happening and they saw a star the context the circumstances in the east and so they followed the star they looked at the circumstances they followed that star now here's the question where did the star get them to think before you answer that question because it's a trick question where did the star get them to they followed that star perhaps for weeks maybe even months just, uh, just to really upset you, before you buy your Christmas cards, don't buy the ones with the Magi standing around the cradle because they probably weren't there. They were there much later, probably. Anyway, that's a bit of an aside. Here's the question. <laughs> you know, it's funny how many things we think are in the Bible that are not in the Bible. That's one of them. <laughs> Back to the question. <laughs> Where did the star get them to? And the answer to that question is it got them to Herod. Whoops. That's not where they were thinking they were going to end up. They went to Herod and said, hey, we've seen this star in the east. We followed it. We've come to worship this king who's been born. Where is he? Well, of course, Herod was a little bit upset by that. And so what Herod did immediately was consult some of the teachers, the leaders of the Jews, and said, what's going on? And they said, ah, it's written in our word that the king of the Jews will be born in Bethlehem. And so those three fellows headed for Bethlehem, and there they found Christ. Their circumstances were important in being led by God, but their circumstances alone didn't get them to Christ. For that, they needed the word. And here's the point, coming back to what I've already said. Circumstances, environment, context, whatever, can be very, very helpful. God uses that to lead us and direct us, but they should never be relied upon as the sole determinant of God's will. For that, we also need to go to God. We need to go to His Word. We need to ask, what is the Word saying? As I've shared before, I think, uh, at risk of repeating myself, A colleague I was working with, working with a fellow who was saying, you know, I believe God's leading me to leave my wife. Really? Yes, seems like every door is opening. It's like we're just not getting on, you know, all this kind of stuff, all of this stuff, but it just does not accord with the Scripture, does it? Circumstances alone are helpful, but not complete in terms of, Determining God's will or understanding God's will. Let's move on in our story. As the story unfolds, uh, the Israelites discover their deception and then something quite unusual happens. It says here in verse 16 Three days after they'd made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbours living near them. So the Israelites set out and on the third day came to their cities Gibeon, Kephirah, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders. That would never happen. But all the leaders answered, we have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. Now here's a question, why were they grumbling? What were the uh, Israelites grumbling about? Well, I suspect they looked at those cities they looked at the plunder of those cities and they said to themselves you know that should have been ours but you've gone and made a deal with them to protect them and so there was a fair bit of pressure perhaps supplied to joshua and the leaders by the people but as we read from this passage joshua acted with integrity in keeping his promise because he knew that if he reneged on that oath an oath that had been made in the name of the Lord, his word and the name of the Lord would be worth nothing. If he'd reneged on that oath that he had made, everybody else around would have heard that the name of the Lord, Yahweh, the name of the God of the Israelites was not worth a cracker. And so Joshua kept his word and it's true isn't it that people soon figure out in relationships with others who is good to their word. You know you soon you soon work out who it is that I can ask a favor and if they say yes no it will be done. You soon figure out who it is if you say oh would you mind filling in for me uh, on the whatever it might be that there's just a risk that that might not happen because they might forget or they might get a better offer or something like that. There's much to be said for people who keep their word. And in fact, there's a number of places in the scripture that speaks about this. Ecclesiastes 5.5, 5, the author said, it's better not to make a promise than to make a promise and not fulfil it. And in Psalm 15, the psalmist asked the question, who may dwell in the house of the Lord? In other words, who may sit in God's presence? And the answer includes statements about the one who is blameless, the one who speaks from the heart, the one who doesn't have slander on his tongue, who does his neighbour no wrong and who keeps his oath even when it hurts. And Joshua kept his oath even when it hurts. And that's, as we draw our time to a conclusion today, is a really challenging question for us, isn't it? Are we prepared to keep our word even when it might be to our detriment? Are we prepared as followers of Christ to stand by commitment even when it gets hard? You know, I might, for example, open the pantry door and look at the block of chocolate that's sitting on the shelf and say to myself, I am not going to touch that block of chocolate for a week. It's a really bad example because that had never happened. Let me use another one. There might be a packet of ginger nut biscuits in there, and I'll say, I will not touch those ginger nut biscuits for a week. But if I do, who does it hurt? Nobody really, you know, it's just a promise that I've broken to myself. But when I promise something to somebody else and I don't keep my word, my witness is damaged, isn't it? In the case of the biscuits, the only person impacted is me. But if I fail to stand by commitments or promises made to others, my witness, my reputation my representation of Christ in the community is damaged and here if you like is the link to Christian marriage that I threw out there earlier in the message what a grief it must be to God that even in the Christian community the divorce rate is pretty much the same as it is in the secular world and I know that there are circumstances that are Uh, they're just so difficult that uh, even christian marriages break down i'm not stupid but gee you know i've sat with people and i've thought to myself you've made promises before god and you're prepared to walk away from them instead of doing the hard work perhaps one of the most difficult moments i've ever had in christian ministry as a minister was sitting with a couple one day who had been experiencing some difficulties in their relationship. Uh, they had been married for I don't know 15 years or more or something like that and had asked me to help them more than happy to do that love doing that it's one of the best parts of the job doing weddings that sort of thing and we sat there and I said to them are you prepared to do the work to actually make this a healthy marriage because I believe it could happen and they looked at each other and they looked at me and they said no and before my eyes the marriage ended and I left their office that day gosh I was shattered to tell you the honest truth because they'd stood at one stage before the Lord and made promises before God made promises to one another made promises before family and friends and yet in that place and that time are not prepared to knuckle down and do the hard work to redeem what I believe was very redeemable what does that say to the world around us. What a difference it would make to our world, I wonder, if Christians were known for absolutely keeping their word, and many are, let me just say too, I've kind of thrown the negative, let's spin the positive. There are an awful lot of people that I know who are faithful in the Lord and faithful to others. What a difference that makes. What a difference our witness to our community is when we are faithful to God uh, because God is faithful to us. In fact, I want to put it to you that one of the characteristics of being made in the image of God is keeping our promises. Well, if you continue reading, and we haven't got time to do that today, if you continue reading this passage, you'll see that the Gibeonites did become water carriers and woodcutters, as was described there in Deuteronomy chapter 20. Uh, on one occasion, as we find further on in the passages here, their their former allies came up against them in opposition so angered were they by the Gibeonites actions Israel good to their word again defended them defeated them and that suggests to me that not only does God want us to keep our word God actually honors it when we do and there's some encouragement for us again today We're going to jump a few chapters in the book of Joshua between uh, today and next Sunday. Next week we will jump into chapter 14. Let me encourage you to read chapters 10 through to 13 which speaks about the division of the land and the defeating of a number of the kings there. Uh, There's some good stuff in there but in terms of our preaching we're going to land in chapter 14 and uh, wind up our series in Joshua fairly soon as we continue to think what it means to live in challenging times just as the israelites did but let's pray now as we conclude let's pray together father we want to thank you again for the challenge there is for us in your word we thank you father that it doesn't leave us sitting comfortably in our seats but uh, yeah sometimes it makes us squirm as we think about um, just what we might have to address in our own lives what we might have to think about in our own families ministry contexts, workplace environments whatever it might be to truly represent you in the manner that you want us to father we've been reminded this morning that uh, knowledge knowledge is terrific but it doesn't necessarily give birth to right actions help us we pray to marry knowledge and wisdom and good decision making guided by you we've been reminded this morning that you are a god who uses our circumstances to lead us and guide us but not to the exclusion of us driving deep into your word and seeking your heart and knowing you personally. And we pray that you'll help us to always be people of our word just as you're a God of your word. So as we speak, we pray the words of Scripture. Let our yes be yes and our no be no. Let us speak truth and speak truth with love. We thank you again for your word that grows us to become more like Christ and praise you for your goodness to us, in Jesus' name. Amen.